This morning from Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Well, this morning we're starting a three-part sermon series I'm calling Roots of the Covenant. We're reading passages from Genesis, these stories of origins of how things got started. This morning from chapter 1, we'll be moving on through the book as we go through the study of Genesis these next few weeks. We'll be exploring these passages which all have to do with the work of God. But not so much the how... The emphasis is on the who, God who created in the beginning when God created. The authors are pointing us toward noticing more about what's going on in our world, particularly what is going on with God, who they proclaim is the creator of the universe. What we'll also find, though, is not just information about whom God is, but how God is calling people to serve the divine purpose of creation in terms of how we live our lives. These stories reveal to us God's identity and purpose, but also reveal to us more about our own identity and purpose. For we are children of God, we are taught. These stories tell us more about faith and creation in terms of a faith proposition than they do about science. Some want to interpret them as somehow if they were written as a scientific treatise. I think that's moving in the wrong direction. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, who many of you had privilege to hear a few years ago when he came to be our lecturer, I was able to come over for a couple of those lectures. He was wonderful. He's one of the great biblical scholars who focuses primarily on the Hebrew Scriptures. He's written about these stories of creation. I want to read you just a couple of sentences that he has written. On the one hand, these stories tell us that God will not act arbitrarily. On the other hand, the world is not autonomous, going its own way, but must live and function according to the ordered intention of the Creator. These texts clearly are not and do not intend to be scientific descriptions of how the world came into being. Rather, they are doxological theological assertions of who the Creator is and what creation is in response to the Creator God. If we were going to read the whole story, we would have to read all the way through chapter 1 and into the first three verses of chapter 2. That would cover the seven days of creation story that you are probably familiar with. But then what we would find if we continued to read that in chapter 2 and verse 4, another story begins. It's another story of creation, 
but from a different perspective. That troubles some people who think that somehow this is science. Science is striving to describe how. Theology is talking more about why and the meaning of the events of creation. I can remember back when I first started seminary, our very first semester, we did a lot of Bible study. Our, all of our classwork was this deep dive into Scripture. That's when our professors pointed out that there were two creation stories. I must confess, I hadn't really noticed that. It was new information to me and to most of my class. We simply hadn't looked closely enough at the text to realize there's one story here and then flowing right behind it is a second story, but with some different characteristics written from a different perspective. Both stories about God and what God is doing in the world but our professors pointed out to us, using these as an example, as well as so many other parts of Scripture, that the Hebrew authors were more comfortable with a plurality of voices being captured for posterity in Scripture than most of us are. Coming after the scientific age, so many of us want a single answer. But the wisdom of faith says when you're talking about God, sometimes more information is better, more perspectives help us. I think they probably understood that no one of us, and in fact not even all of us together, can capture or articulate all the majesty and grandeur of God. That no one of us can describe all of who God is in God's fullness. And so when we have more voices contributing, we have greater opportunity to understand more about God. Including different perspectives broadens and enriches our conceptions of God and how we can connect with God. If you read through the first story closely, what you see are characteristics of power, this God putting things in order in creation. There's too much water and too much darkness, and this God is ordering things and lining them out. But you get the sense of God's grandeur, but you also sort of get a sense of God's distance. God, this God seems a little more remote and transcendent, if you will. But if you read on into that second chapter, all of a sudden you have a different portrait of God. The God described in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, is much more personal. There's greater intimacy between this God and humanity. This God is so close to the first human that God is breathing life, breath, right into the nostrils of the first person. And you get the sense of closeness and how this God cares so very deeply about each of us and is even empathizing with the loneliness of that first human. It's a different description and yet gives us more information and more contours and more understanding, I think, as to the character of our God. But back to our text this morning, 
We are given a clue that it's repeated throughout chapter 1 if you read through the whole thing. And it reveals to us that God is a good God, creating good things. Let me read for you again that first part we're using today. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God saw that the light was good. And God saw that it was good is going to be a refrain that you find throughout this first creation story. And God saw that it was good. The authors are telling us over and over about who God is. This is a good God creating good things. They make this bold faith statement that God is good and what God has made is good. And we inherit this faith story as Christians so that we too can affirm that creation is good and it is a good place. There's an additional insight, though, I think we can also draw from this repetition that they put into the story about, and God saw that it was good. We could affirm that every day created by God is a good day. Now that's not to say that everything that happens every day is to our benefit or for our good, or that everything that happens to us is under our control so that all the things we want, we get. It's not saying that. But it's saying that there's a possibility for goodness and that God's purpose is moving in terms of creation toward goodness. It gives us a theological foundation as Christians to proclaim that every day is a day filled with good possibilities from God and can be used for God's purposes. In popular culture, we have sayings that refer to this as well. Bloom where you are planted. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. God doesn't make junk. There's these little phrases that we hear that are affirming this same kind of idea a little less theologically and yet saying that we understand that there are good possibilities all around us. And even when things are not going our way, that God is still a good God and is at work in our midst for good. But lest we conclude that that's kind of just a new age affirmation or a nice thought, but has no real practical consequences in the world, let me see if I can extend this idea with an illustration. Go back with me to the time of John Wesley and the early Methodist. People began to come to Wesley seeking spiritual advice. You may remember that part of the story. He begins to 
put them into groups. At first, he meets with them individually, but there's so many of them, he begins to assign a time. All come on Thursday night, and then there's so many, he puts them into individual groups. Finally, there's so many people that are coming, he decides he needs to write down some of his advice and instruction about Christian living and Christian discipleship. One of the things he writes becomes known as the general rules. Do you remember those, the general rules? There are three of them. I've put them in your outline. He elaborates on them, but these are the three topics. He says, first, do no harm. Second, do good. Third, attend to the ordinances or spiritual practices of God. Now, early on in the Methodist movement, it is not a movement of preachers or priests and worship. It is a movement of lay people who began to meet together to seek God, to have a more vital relationship with God. And under Wesley's tutelage, then began to understand that their life is to be a blessing to those around them. They're about doing good. These early Methodists began to follow these general rules to do no harm and to do good while they're attending to the ordinances of the practices of spiritual life with God. These lay people, and it's primarily a movement of lay people, began to see that every day God is giving them opportunity to do good. These early Methodists, as they shape and form themselves while they're meeting together, they began to have this self-understanding. They understood themselves called by God to do good as part of creation. I want to read a few lines from one of our Methodist professors who's writing about this time in Methodist history. He says, Methodist laity also ministered far beyond the ranks of the card-carrying Methodists. They reached out to the families and friends of Methodists. In the wider community, they visited from house to house. They visited prisoners and the families of prisoners. They visited people in hospitals. And during epidemics, Methodists were known to be the only people who cared enough and dared enough to visit the hospitals. Wherever they engaged in ministry, they also engaged in the ministry of evangelical conversation. They also prayed with people, and they invited people to their class meeting or Methodist society to explore the possibility of new life. 18th century Methodists were an entrepreneurial laity. Lay people invented many ministries to serve people in their community. In some communities, lay Methodists gathered children to give them the only organized education they might ever experience. Lay people started most of the new classes and societies within Methodism. Lay people brought Methodist Christianity across the Atlantic. Some historians point to the Methodists when they look at English history and note that they did not have a bloody revolution as did France and some other similar countries. And they say it was because John Wesley and the Methodists 
We're so busy doing good, caring for the poor, and alleviating suffering that they changed their culture and their society so that they did not have to have an armed revolution. Do no harm. Do good. Attend to the ordinances of God. Our life of faith has practical consequences, not just for us, but for our whole culture, for those people around us, for our city, for our state, and in fact, for our world. Are we people who take this story of creation seriously as a call to be God's trustees and therefore to be busy in the world doing good? It is a question of faith. I think it is a question worth contemplating. I think it is important for us to do some self-examination and to look at our day-to-day lives and see if from this theological foundation of God being one who creates in the world goodness, whether or not we sense that we are a part of that work of God, and if our life shows any evidence of that as we go about our daily task. The good news from this story is that God loves us, that God has created this world and created us and blesses us. You are a child of God, created in the image of God, it says. And at the end of the story, after humanity is created, God sees it and says that it is very good. How wonderful that we have a God who cares for us so much and has given us everything we need for life and life abundant. The choice is whether or not we choose to seize that faith and to live it out in our own lives. We affirmed it earlier in our service today when Reverend Venable was leading us in our affirmation of faith. You remember what we said? We are not alone. We live in God's world. We believe in God who has created and is creating. Therefore, we went on to say we trust in God. We trust in God. In life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. Amen.